Hello and welcome to this week's edition of Week in Review, a production of 90.3 WRST-FM Oshkosh. I'm Joe Schultz. This week, we'll have an exclusive interview with UW Oshkosh Chancellor Andrew Levitt. We'll take a look at how essential workers are coping with the coronavirus pandemic, and we'll examine Wisconsin's decision to hold an election during the pandemic. Those stories and more coming up on Week in Review. According to Johns Hopkins University, the United States has more than 600,000 confirmed cases of COVID-19 and over 20,000 deaths as a result of the virus. There were 3,875 confirmed cases in Wisconsin and 183 deaths as of April 16th. In Winnebago County, there have been 31 confirmed cases of COVID-19 and one death. According to Unicast, a company using GPS technology to monitor social distance, Winnebago County has a C grade for its social distancing efforts. On Thursday, Governor Tony Evers directed the Department of Health Services to extend the safer-at-home order to May 26th. Evers amended the order to open up select parts of the economy and to close K-12 schools for the rest of the year. In a press release, Evers said the outlook for Wisconsin was grim at first, but because of Safer at Home, the projections are improving. He says the state will rely on science and public health experts to guide it through the pandemic. On Wednesday, Governor Evers signed a bill to address the COVID-19 pandemic in Wisconsin. It lifts the one-week wait period for unemployment insurance and requires health insurers to cover COVID-19 testing. In a written statement, Evers was critical of the bill, saying it's a step in the right direction, but more needs to be done. He says the bill does not provide hazard pay or compensation for frontline workers and lacks meaningful support for small businesses and farmers who are struggling to make ends meet. Eight inmates at the Oshkosh Correctional Institution have tested positive for COVID-19. According to State Representative Michael Shaw, a Republican from Oshkosh and chairman of the Assembly's Committee on Corrections, the prison has placed the housing units of those inmates on lockdown. Beyond locking part of the prison down, Schraw says the inmates who have tested positive have been placed in a separate housing unit from the rest of the prison population until they no longer test positive for the virus. It's unknown exactly how the virus was brought into the facility, but he says that from contact tracing, it appears that it was brought into the facility from an asymptomatic staff member. According to the Department of Corrections website, No DOC employees at Oshkosh Correctional have tested positive for the virus as of April 15th. In a chaotic and controversial spring election, liberal judge Jill Karofsky defeated conservative incumbent Daniel Kelly by a 10.6% margin to claim a seat on the state Supreme Court bench. Karofsky's win narrows the conservative majority on the court from 5 to 2 to 4 to 3. Beyond her victory... Former Vice President Joe Biden defeated Senator Bernie Sanders in the Democratic presidential primary race, and hundreds of down-ballot positions were filled. Locally, three seats on the Oshkosh Common Council were filled, along with two seats on the school board and one on the Winnebago County Board of Supervisors. Lindsey Erickson and Michael Ford were elected to the Common Council, collecting 22.3% of the vote and 21.3% respectively, while incumbent Matt McGrower was re-elected after collecting 17.7% of the vote. Bill Miller, an incumbent on the Council, did not win a seat after collecting only 17.2%. In the school board race, incumbents Barbara Herzog and Bob Poschel won seats, 
collecting 40.1% and 34.7% of the vote, respectively. On the county board, incumbent Julie A. Gordon kept her seat with 67.1% of the vote. This spring election wasn't without its share of partisan politics. Early on, Governor Tony Evers indicated that he wanted the election to go on as planned, but as health experts continued to recommend postponing, Evers changed his mind and asked the state legislature to intervene. After the legislature refused to intervene, Evers issued an executive order to postpone the election. State GOP leaders sued, and the Wisconsin Supreme Court decided the election would go on as planned. Our first guest on the show today is UW Oshkosh Communications Professor Tony Palmieri. Tony writes a column for the Oshkosh Independent website titled State of the State that examines politics in Wisconsin. In his column about the election, he described the partisan infighting as politics as war. Tony, thanks for being on the program. I'm just wondering if you'd be willing to explain to our listeners what politics as war means. Well, we expect government officials when they get elected to try and solve problems. We know there's going to be partisan differences. That's totally expected. That's normal. That's natural. But in politics as war, the interest is not in solving problems. The interest is in winning. And especially with the modern Republican Party, they seem to have completely lost any concern with public interest, and it is now about power and control. I think that's really unfortunate, and in terms of this most recent election, it was absolutely shameful. When you've got public health officials and I think 14 or 15 other states that had uh, public health officials are telling you delay the election, 14 or 15 other states, including some with Republican governors, had delayed their elections, and somehow Wisconsin has to be the outlier in all of that because someone in Madison in the legislature discovered that, hey, if we have a low turnout election, then our Supreme Court candidate has a better chance of winning. That I've been in Wisconsin for over 30 years. That was the most shameful political action I've ever seen. I can't imagine anything that even comes close to that. It, it, was, it, was, it was abominable. And I guess the inspiring thing, you and I are speaking a day after the election, when it turns out that Daniel Kelly, the, the Republican choice for Supreme Court, lost, mm-hmm. even though it looks like there was a lower uh, voter turnout. It looks like the voters were telling the Republican legislature, this is enough. You've gone too far. Mm-hmm. Uh, will, will they learn anything from this? Probably not. <laughs> you know? But the public did did come out, and uh, the strategy of getting our judicial candidate in with a low voter turnout did not work. And then I guess, when did state-level politics get this hyper-partisan? Was it during the Walker administration? Wisconsin is a terrible example of this. 
Wisconsin and North Carolina are probably the two worst examples of what we call gerrymandering. Mm -hmm. And gerrymandering is not when the voters choose their elected officials, but it's when the elected officials choose their voters. And so these characters in Madison who chose to have us risk our death rather than delay the election, they're all going back now to their gerrymandered districts in which their chances of losing are very, very slim. Mm -hmm. So that, that's, that really does create a kind of war mentality. I can do anything I want. There's no accountability. I'm not likely <laughs> to lose. And by the way, uh, Joe, I don't say all this to hold the Democrats blameless. Mm -hmm. I mean, they, they have participated in this throughout the years in their own way. Um, even on this coming election, I mean, you said earlier, Governor Evers at first, for some reason, seemed to be saying he didn't think he had the power to delay an election. Well, then what the heck is emergency powers if it does not include the power to delay an election during a global pandemic in which people are dying? So he waited too long for the declaration, and by, you know, by that time, uh, it, it just didn't happen. I mean, this isn't the first time that the GOP has kind of blocked Evers and kind of really prevented him from doing stuff. I mean, even before the guy took office, they held a special session to kind of curb his powers. And then when you were talking about gerrymandering, he appointed a nonpartisan committee to redraw the districts. But the GOP kind of said, we're going to draw our own lines again because the legislature draws their lines. Um, of course they're saying that. But I guess you almost expect this hyper-partisan stuff on the federal level. You don't necessarily expect it on the state level, especially during a crisis like this. Yeah, exactly right. You, you would think that during a pandemic, there would at least be some good faith in which all sides would say, look, let's do what we have to do to protect public safety and solve these horrendous economic problems now that are coming as a, as a result of this. The idea that anyone in Madison is playing power politics at this moment, it's, it's just, I, I just can't find a language, Joe, to explain how horrible this is. What does it take for an elected official to say, now is the time to find a way to get along with people across the aisle? So, you know, my, my hope is that even in these gerrymandered districts, Enough independent voters are looking at these characters and saying, you need to go. Voters who live in these gerrymandered districts, they are as harmed by the pandemic and the economic chaos as anyone else in the country. And so at some point, they need to wake up and say, you know what, we're going to stop giving cover to these elected officials that are just representing whatever special interests are ruling down there in Madison. So it, this whole election cycle was really a low point for Wisconsin politics. Maybe, I don't want to exaggerate, but that may have been the lowest point of politics in the history of this state. It's hard to find anything that even approaches that. I mean, at least even with Act 10 back in 2011, where we had, you know, mass protests and chaos in Madison for a month, even with that, at least you could say that Governor Walker had a position on the table, a philosophy about how our budget should be uh, structured in the state. You could at least give him that and say maybe it was a political disagreement. But with this, Joe, there should be no political disagreement. 
Mm-hmm. Exactly. You, 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 have, you have public health officials that are unanimously telling you that at this point in the pandemic, the last thing you want to do is introduce people into large crowds. You've got mm-hmm. the city of Milwaukee that is telling you we normally have 180 polling locations. We're going to be down to five. Mm-hmm. Right? Green Bay, I think, normally has 40 or 50. They were down to two. Right? Even poll workers who showed up were not feeling good about it. Everyone was nervous and on edge. Not everyone had the kind of hazmat gear that uh, Representative Robin Voss had when he worked the polls. So th- this this is... Um, yeah, it's it's a problem. Now now is the time for people to get out of their war mindset and say, we got to get to work solving problems. As citizens, I guess, what can we do to, to get rid of this politics is war thing? Because, I mean, you kind of mentioned it's a little bit the same on the left and the right, where both yeah. sides kind of just want to win for the sake of winning. Right. So what can we do as voters? You know, I, I always tell my students here at UW Oshkosh that voting is, is really important, but voting is one activity among many civic engagement activities. Um, I think a lot more of us need to be better at letting the elected officials know where we stand. We've got to contact them through email, letters, phone. I mean, I know that stuff sounds old-fashioned and traditional, but politicians respond to pressure. Mm-hmm. And too many of us over the years have stopped pressuring them. We're really good at putting stuff on our Facebook walls or, or Twitter, but we got to get back in the habit of letting these elected officials know that we, the people, mean business. We want them to solve or at least work towards solving some of these problems. You know, and we, we need to do a better job of getting together in groups and having discussion about some of these issues like gerrymandering, about money in politics, and not expecting that these problems are going to be solved top down. I mean, I keep saying that the elected officials need to be involved in problem solving, and that's true, but we need to give them the solutions. The solutions need to be generated at the street level. Mm-hmm. I, I, was, I was very, very, very encouraged by the election results in the city of Oshkosh, where city voters in Oshkosh put on their city council people that are very, very solution-oriented mm-hmm. and very much into listening to the to the will of the, of the people. So that's a good step. And uh, as you know, uh, local government, uh, when we talk about elections, local governments are nonpartisan. Mm-hmm. So the politics as war is generally not as big of an issue at the local level, thankfully. <laughs> so... Um, yeah, again, I, I wish I had an easy answer to this. There is no easy answer. We kind of touched on it already, but the low turnout this time didn't really help the GOP um, with Jill Karhofsky defeating conservative incumbent Daniel Kelly. You interpreted it as it was kind of people lashing out at the conservative decision to hold this election. Yeah, yeah I think the people were putting a middle finger up to the Republicans in Madison. I think, I think I, you know, no one has looked at the data yet, but it, it's looking to me like what happened is that the Republicans so deeply offended the independent voters. Mm-hmm that it's looking like the independent voters really swung toward Karofsky. 
Because I think she ended up winning by, what is it, like eight points, maybe even double digits. I haven't, I haven't looked at the numbers this morning. She was expected originally to win this election because it was presidential primary day and the only competition was on the Democratic side, Sanders versus Biden. Mm-hmm. No one was challenging Trump on the Republican side. So Karofsky was expected to win this before the pandemic, but it was never expected to be as wide of a margin. So what that says to me is the the crooks in Madison, the people who don't care about your and my health, it looks like they so deeply offended the independent voters that the independent voters greatly swung for Karofsky. I'm confident that's what the data is going to show when it finally comes out. And then back to some of the down-ballot races, it sounded like early on that was kind of the reason Governor Evers was hesitant to try and postpone the election was because there were a lot of down-ballot seats that needed to get filled. There were three positions on Common Council, two on the school board, one on the county board. You, You already touched on the Common Council that they elected problem solvers, but I was just kind of wondering if the election had been postponed, would the folks in those seats have just kind of extended their term? Yeah, my understanding have some language about that. I believe the executive order basically said that the incumbents would remain in those seats until the election was held. I mean, this, this could have been done. I mean, in Ohio, they delayed their election and then they allowed for three weeks for mail-in ballots. spike in cases, nobody wins, kind of despite the politics. It just kind of makes this whole crisis we're in worse, right? Exactly. Yeah, I saw, I saw a tweet this morning. Some guy said, the virus wins. 
<laughs> yeah. It's just, it's just so, it's so terrible. The idea that, the, again, I, I hate to keep repeating it, Joe, but the idea that even one elected official would allow that to go on is it, just to me. I, I hope people never forget this. Mm-hmm. You know, even people who like the way the results turned out, you know, there are a lot of people now, especially Democrats, who are saying, oh, you know, okay, well, Karofsky won, so maybe it all turned out for the best. I don't think we can say that. I don't think we can ever let people forget that this happened, that we had a group of officials up to and including the United States Supreme Court that were willing to let people go out and potentially infect others or die, or die, just so that one set of results might happen in an election. That's, that is, that's, I can't think of anything more appalling than that when it comes to politics. That was really all I had for you. Thanks so much for taking some time out of your day to talk to me. I really appreciate it. The Oshkosh Avenue Bridge Rehabilitation Project has been minimally affected by COVID-19 and should be completed in the next few months. Billy Piotrowski reports. While businesses and places everywhere are closing up due to COVID-19, the Oshkosh Avenue Bridge Rehabilitation Project is right on schedule. The bridge, located a few blocks north of the UW Oshkosh campus, had closed near the end of February in order to go through some scheduled maintenance. Kurt Peters, project manager for the rehabilitation, said that the project has progressed without a problem so far. The project has gone very smoothly. We've had limited changes of what we anticipated. Contractors have been doing a good job, and the weather has been cooperating, so it's been going quite well. The project includes repairing and resealing the surface of the concrete bridge deck, replacing the approach slabs, and repainting select parts of the bridge. Peters also said in an email to WRST that the COVID-19 pandemic has not had much impact on the project or schedule. At this time, we have completed all of the work that will impact boat traffic. A lot of that just got completed here this week, so the bridge is now functional. They can lift the bridge again for larger boats and things like that. Peters said that the project should be complete around the middle of June, allowing all regular vehicle and pedestrian traffic to resume on the bridge as well as to the surrounding area. For WRST News, I'm Billy Piotrowski. Thousands of workers in Wisconsin are coping with a heightened sense of anxiety as they risk exposure to COVID-19 to provide residents with essential goods and services amid a global pandemic. According to Governor Evers' safer-at-home order, some of the businesses still open include stores selling groceries or medicine, restaurants offering carryout or delivery, and others providing the necessities of life. Many of the jobs providing necessities, such as cashiers, fast food workers, and retail workers, face an elevated risk for COVID-19 exposure due to their close proximity to others. Many of those workers often earn less than the national median income and do not have paid sick leave. One essential worker is a 22-year-old Oshkosh resident who works at a local grocery store. He says working during the pandemic is worrisome because he's generally face-to-face with customers and unable to maintain social distance. Recently, his store installed a plexiglass partition between customers and cashiers. Still, he isn't sure how much it helps prevent the virus from spreading. It's definitely reassuring to have it there. The difficult part, though, is encouraging customers to stay in front of it. At the moment, he's trying to limit his interactions outside of work, totally closing off from face-to-face interaction with friends and family to prevent spreading the virus. It's been weird. 
I still connect with people through FaceTime and text messages, Snapchat, but that's kind of the only outside interaction I have. Another grocery store worker is a 23-year-old Oshkosh resident. He says his employer is encouraging workers to utilize personal protective equipment, such as masks and gloves. He says about half the customers who come in wear masks and most wear gloves. For the most part, he says customers have been friendly and appreciative of the workers. It made at least some people appreciate the fact that, yeah, we are all in this together. You know, there's not much we can do besides doing our individual parts to help protect ourselves and those around us. He isn't too worried about his personal safety, but he is concerned that he may bring the virus home because he lives with his parents. My mom, she's in her mid-50s. You know, I'm, I am obviously concerned about her getting it. But yeah, especially my stepdad, he is borderline with diabetic and over 60. When he gets sick, even if it's just a little bug, he usually gets ridiculously sick for a few days. Fast food workers have also been deemed essential under the Safer at Home order. For one 21-year-old at an Oshkosh fast food restaurant, that means he needs to continue to make food, watch labor costs, and wipe down the facility. The restaurant he works at has taken precautions, such as placing plexiglass barriers over part of the drive through windows. But he says it isn't enough to ensure safety and prevent the spread of COVID-19. I feel like the best way to prevent it all would just be no exposure at all. Just the amount of contact you have with people there, someone's going to end up catching it. If a worker were to contract the virus, he says the company would send them home for two weeks without pay. Despite his worries and a lack of compensation if he were to contract COVID-19, he says that he needs to continue to work throughout the pandemic. I mean, I still have to pay my bills, so I guess it's like kind of a thing where I have to. Beyond fast food workers, many gas stations and convenience stores have remained open as well. One convenience store worker is a 23-year-old Oshkosh resident who works as a cashier. She's worried about the virus, but says she can't come to work every day afraid of coming to work. I don't want to seem scared or scare the guests because they're just trying to get their stuff and get out of there too. Nobody really wants to be out and about catching this thing. Because she works with the public and her boyfriend works in a nursing home, she hasn't been able to see him in weeks. She hasn't been able to visit her grandmother either, out of fear of possibly carrying the virus. So it's just kind of like a real bummer that I am working with the public and I can't see the people that I do want to see, but I'm taking the best precautions that I can to keep everybody safe. Another worker coping during the pandemic is a 19-year-old who works for a retailer in Oshkosh. He isn't too concerned about contracting COVID-19, but he says the possibility is always in the back of his mind. He lives at home with his parents, who have also been deemed essential. He says that if one of them contracts the virus, everyone will. It would definitely be a concern for me if they didn't work, for sure. And it's why we don't see some of our family members more. Some local department stores have remained open as well. One 22-year-old Oshkosh resident works as a stalker at a home improvement store. The store he works at has signs on the floor indicating how far away customers need to be in order to ensure social distance. He doesn't interact with customers too much, but the threat of contracting the virus is always in his mind. I was more comfortable doing the overnights than soft during the day again. He says shopping carts are continuously sprayed with disinfectant, and when the store closes at night, workers thoroughly clean with bleach water. Similar to after 9-11, when airports became more secure, he hopes employers will continue stringent cleaning procedures after the pandemic is over. 
Because I think if you close at 10, you're just going to be actually like people who close will work till like 10.30 because they're just going to have additional like cleaning, which I think is a good idea anyway. For one 24-year-old working for a retailer in Oshkosh, being deemed essential has meant being in close contact with a multitude of people. She says there are stickers on the ground that tell customers how far away they need to be when waiting in line. But when a customer is at the front of the line getting items scanned, she says they are only about two to three feet from an employee. The six-feet rule definitely does not apply. During her last shift, she says she had an eerie feeling because workers don't wear gloves and aren't allowed to wear masks when they cashier either. Well, we're at the cash registers. We're not allowed to wear masks because cash can hear us. And, like, obviously we don't want that. But then essentially, like, we're putting our own health at risk to, like, be at work. She isn't too concerned about her health because she's young and healthy. But she's worried about possibly carrying the virus and spreading it to someone else. Because of those worries, she hasn't seen her parents in nearly a month. She says her parents are in their 60s, and avoiding them has been surreal because she's exceptionally close with her family. Going to work, I'm already putting myself at risk, so like I can't go home and like take that with them. She wants people to take the virus seriously and stop shopping for non-essential items until it's safe to do so. We're not in quarantine because it's all fun and games. Essential businesses aren't open just so you can come hang out because mm-hmm. you're bored. After almost going extinct nearly 40 years ago, the bald eagle population has made a comeback. Patrick Kane reports. During the 1970s, bald eagles were considered an endangered species not only in Wisconsin, but nationally. According to a new report from the Wisconsin Department of Natural Resources, however, they have made a remarkable recovery around the state. Laura Jaskowitz, a research scientist with the Wisconsin Department of Natural Resources, explains that the restriction of DDT and increased legislation has helped sustain the population. DDT actually thinned the shells of eagles and other birds' eggs, so when the bird would sit on the egg, it would just collapse. So for a while, that caused no reproduction in the birds. So once DDT was banned, the birds were able to start growing their populations again. The Bald and Golden Eagle Act protected eagles even more. Jaskowitz also says that eagles began migrating south because of their habitat. The eagles nest on lakes or nearby lakes or rivers so that they can fish easily and bring that back to their nest when they're feeding the young. They've been spreading out to other lakes that also have good fishing or other rivers. It seems like they're even starting to get a little used to population. There's been eagles nesting closer to cities than we'd expect. The DNR report says that 71 of the 72 counties in the state have documented active eagles nests, with the only exception being Milwaukee County. The report also says that north-central Wisconsin has the highest density of nesting bald eagles in North America. Fifteen active nests reside in Winnebago County, along with 11 in Outagamie, two in Calumet, and four in Fond du Lac County. In total, 1,684 nests were reported as active in Wisconsin in 2019, up from 1,148 10 years ago, and up from only 108 in 1973. Reporting for WRST News, I'm Patrick Kane. One line of work that's in short supply but high demand is broadcast engineering. Ben Dombowski reports. Every radio and television station needs a broadcast engineer, many of which are in high demand as current engineers reach retirement age. 
Steve Brown, a broadcast engineer for Woodward Radio in Appleton, says that demand is high for a variety of reasons. I think there's a lower quantity of full-fledged broadcast engineers employed today as maybe compared to 20 years ago. There's been a lot of consolidation in the industry, and I think you've got fewer guys taking care of more properties. The equipment's gotten better. There's been a lot of economic pressure on broadcasting in general. So these realignments, I think, have reduced the numbers of broadcast engineers that are working. But I think demand is still high because many of our current broadcast engineers are of retirement age and leaving the workforce. And there does seem to be a shortage, a fairly consistent shortage of incoming broadcast engineers to take their place. Brown also believes that in order to see change, there are certain things that must be addressed. In some environments, the pay has to become more competitive. And of course, benefits is another area. Um, I'm very fortunate in my company where all these areas are addressed, but some companies have not been as quick to do that. And then they find high turnover and uh, they're the ones having the hardest time finding people are the ones that have not addressed those issues. The Wisconsin Broadcasters Association also believes that a shortage of engineers is a problem. Michelle Vetterkind, president of the WBA, says that the WBA provides various resources and training centers to prepare incoming broadcast engineers for a worthwhile career. We have our broadcasters clinic in the fall every year. It's a three-day broadcast engineering event, and we draw in from, I'm sure it was 24 states who came to our broadcasters clinic, and that is something that we have, I think, that really helps to spread the word about how concerned Wisconsin is, but how supportive Wisconsin is about the broadcast engineering community. Another offering that we have is called our Media Technology Institute, and it's a three-day event held in conjunction with our summer conference every year, and really what it is is kind of a condensed engineering training session where someone can take, again, someone who sees maybe potential in someone and an employee is a broadcast engineer, send them to the WBA Media Technology Institute, and they'll spend time with seasoned engineers, some of our legacy engineers, really get three days of very intense training. That has been very well received as well. For WRST News, I'm Ben Nomkowski. Last month, UW Oshkosh announced that it was sending students home and switching to online classes for the remainder of the semester. Earlier this week, we sat down with UW Oshkosh Chancellor Andrew Levitt to discuss updates about the university's response to the COVID-19 pandemic. Last week, via campus-wide email, you announced that UW Oshkosh will be holding a virtual commencement ceremony on May 16th. I understand that students graduating this year have the option to attend a mid-year commencement ceremony on December 19th as well. I was wondering if you could provide some additional information about how virtual commencement's going to work. Well, I've never seen a virtual commencement before, so we'll both learn that together. There is a company out there that provides the basic technology infrastructure, but it enables students to, say, upload their photographs, the names will be read, you can log on to this thing and, and watch the commencement speakers, you get to see me wear a gown, you get to do all those great things. So we do, we want to try to make it as lifelike as possible without actually being there. So that's what we have involved in a, uh, in a virtual ceremony. In terms of enrollment, at the Coffee with the Chancellor open forum last week, you talked a little bit about how university administration is looking at projections for next year. And that one of the projections showed that we could be facing a 12% dip in enrollment 
I was just kind of wondering, what's causing the dip? Is it coronavirus? Yes, uh, it certainly is. It's just created a lot of uncertainty amongst certainly our our continuing and returning students. Mm -hmm. Many students may not be in a a position financially to get back into school next fall, though I hope that they will come and talk to us because we do have some resources. Obviously, we're recruiting a first-year class, and that's actually going pretty well. But given our new reality, you just don't know what's going to happen. So you always need to plan for a variety of contingencies and hope for the best. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about kind of what we can do as a campus community to kind of ensure that a lot of our current students come back and finish. Well, from the faculty and staff point of view, if you have direct contact with students, you know, that's really going to be valuable. And the reason is, is that you have the ability to influence people to suggest that, hey, you can come on back and let's continue to work on your degree. We expect that also within the face-to-face environment. And we, have, of course, achieved that. Is this virtual world that we're living in right now is a little new and unwieldy for many of our faculty mm-hmm. and staff. Mm-hmm. So what we can be doing, all of us can be doing, is anytime you get to interact with a student, see if they're doing okay. Ask them how they're doing in our classes. Are they engaged? Are they following through? And also, of course, encourage them to enroll or sign up for classes for the next fall. In an interview with the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel, you said that UW Oshkosh is refunding students that were forced to move out due to the COVID-19 pandemic about $5 million. I was just wondering, how is that going to impact the budget situation? Well, it's the right thing to do. The students entrust us with that money in order to provide them with living accommodations room and board. Since we're not able to do that because of COVID-19, it makes all the sense in the world to simply refund that money back to the students, of course, prorated for the part they haven't used. Yes, it's going to make it a little tighter in terms of cash. Universities, we worry about cash flow as well as any business does, and, and of course about budget. So it's definitely going to put us under a little bit more stress in that way, and that we have to figure out other ways to make those dollars. UW Oshkosh is switching to an opt-in pass or fail grading system. And the way I understand it is at the end of the semester, students can apply for either a pass credit, a pass other credit, or a no count grade. If you have a C or better, that will count as a pass credit. A D minus to a C minus will count as a pass other, and an F would count as a no credit. I was wondering if you could expand on that a little bit. Well, I think this is actually a great solution to a problem that every university in the country has right now. How do you establish a fair grading system? Many institutions have simply just gone pass-fail, and we didn't think that was quite the right thing to do. Our, our provost, John Coker, says he, he received far more emails from students saying they need a, a letter grade to continue what they're doing and to make sure that we preserve that. So I think we have the best of both worlds now. A student will work hard and receive a letter grade, and then within two weeks after the end of the semester, be able to petition to have that grade changed to the the three choices you you just enumerated. So I think it takes a little pressure off both the student and the faculty. The way I understand it is the pass-fail grades, that will not impact a student's GPA. That's correct. It's not factored into a GPA, so you can get credit for taking the class, but it doesn't add to your GPA. I was just wondering if you wanted to talk a little bit about the emergency operations team at UW Oshkosh and kind of the effort that they've put in during the pandemic. Um, We have an emergency operations center. Our overall public safety is 
It's overseen by Chief Kurt Leibold, that's the chief of our police department. And he has a lieutenant, a Lieutenant Trent Martin, and there's a risk manager at the university. Her name is Kim Langhoff. So some time ago, we established this EOC that could be activated at any time. And that's just what happened last September. Vice Chancellor Shell Green started pulling some people together to talk about how would we interact with the pandemic. Mm-hmm. If you recall, we had a norovirus outbreak on our campus about two years ago. And as a result of that, we actually are pretty good at this. We kind of know how to manage residence halls under these environments. So they started meeting in September, and by October, we had activated the EOC. Uh, They have put in countless hours. It's a 24-7 job. Then you have the next ring, and that's the residence hall staff as well as the custodial staff. And people from facilities did an amazing job cleaning out two residence halls in a very short amount of time to prepare them to receive COVID patients if that were necessary. Is the EOC kind of making plans for in case coronavirus kind of spikes again in the fall? I know some health experts are saying it might spike again, but it's still very up in the air. It is. Uh, EOCs are clearly involved in those conversations. Those are more strategic in nature, which means they reside more with me and the university cabinet. We're coming up with a couple of different scenarios of what we have to plan for sort of if-then statements that we do. And, you know, there is a, a chance that we won't meet in the fall face-to-face, that we will be, we'll still be online. And also, people's individual behavior also may dictate how many students we get back. There may be uh, students who are okay going into a residence hall, which if they're open, that means they're safe. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there might be other students who don't want to. So uh, we don't quite know what to expect next fall, and that's one of the reasons why we are planning so carefully. That was kind of all I had for you question-wise. Is there anything else that you wanted to add? Well, well thank you for, for reaching out about the status of the university. The university remains strong. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm, again, very proud of the faculty, staff, and students. I believe that higher education in general, including the tech colleges, uh, are going to be one of the ways that we uh, rise above this as, as we move out of the self-imposed quarantines. So uh, I'm just really bullish for the future. I think that uh, UW Oshkosh can have a big part in that. As local businesses begin to feel the financial strain of the coronavirus outbreak, community leaders are stepping up to provide a helping hand. The Greater Oshkosh Economic Development Corporation, the Convention and Visitors Bureau, and the Chamber of Commerce are all working to reduce the burden placed on small businesses by the economic slowdown caused by the pandemic. Greater Oshkosh's Revolving Loan Fund Committee has suspended all principal and interest payments for its current loan recipients for three months. Jason White, the CEO of Greater Oshkosh, says suspending loan payments gives businesses a little breathing room to help them ride out the economic downturn. We believe that, you know, they don't need one more headache. I mean, there's about 100 things that each business is going to worry about right now. The Convention and Visitors Bureau has created a What's Open in Oshkosh list on its website that's updated as often as possible. Amy Albright, the Convention and Visitors Bureau's executive director, says the list is meant to help businesses impacted by the pandemic. We're just trying to do our part and uh, really encouraging people to support local at this time. The Chamber of Commerce started a bar and restaurant emergency micro-loan program to help chamber member businesses impacted by the ban on dine-in services. Rob Clayman, the Chamber's Senior Vice President of Economic Development, says the program mirrors a similar program implemented in 2010 when Main Street was reconstructed. Many 
businesses and business types are being impacted by the coronavirus. So this is that certainly a targeted group that's really feeling it right now. The nonprofit organization, Ducks Unlimited, got its start back in 1937 when America was going through the Dust Bowl and the waterfowl population saw record lows. Since then, Ducks Unlimited has been committed to preserving, maintaining, and restoring wetlands across North America. Ducks Unlimited conducted numerous projects in the state of Wisconsin during 2019. Jonathan Samp reports. Ducks Unlimited has been committed to preserving, maintaining, and restoring wetlands since 1937. In the state of Wisconsin during 2019, Ducks Unlimited conducted 30 projects costing a total of $2.7 million, which helped to restore more than 11,656 acres of wetland. Chris Sebastian, a Ducks Unlimited Public Affairs Coordinator for the Great Lakes and Atlantic region, says the projects that were done in 2019 were done along Lake Michigan, the Bay of Green Bay, the northwest region of the state, and right here in Oshkosh. Chris Sebastian explains the importance of wetlands and how wetlands benefit our whole ecosystem. Um, wetlands really provide a, a, a huge benefit to all wildlife um, in Wisconsin and throughout uh, the, the, the United States. Um, wetlands act, well, one, they act as nature's kidneys. And by that, I mean they help to filter uh, rainwater that runs off of our landscape before it enters our lakes and our streams and our ponds. So we actually get cleaner water by having more wetlands on the ground. Sebastian also explains the unique process of how they restore areas that were once wetlands. The seed bank is already there. You know, historically, down in all that muck and all those layers of, of, of stream banks and everything else, there's seeds already there from, from generations ago. So really, once you put water back on the ground, this vegetation kind of pops right back up again. So in lots of ways, we don't have to do any actual plantings. It's already there for us. For more information about Ducks Unlimited and their wetland restoration projects, visit www.ducks.org backslash Wisconsin. For WRST News, I'm Jonathan Samp. This show is a production of 90.3 WRST-FM Oshkosh. Music for this episode was provided by FesleyanStudios.com. Thanks for listening, and tune in next week for another edition of Week in Review.